This is GSAP Conversations from the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University in New York City. I'm Dina Malandraos. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Shritama from the AD program. And I'm Yuling from the MARC program. Welcome back to GSAP Conversations. In today's episode, MARC student Isaac Kim and MFA student Benjamin Eckersley speak with science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson. During their conversation, Robinson embraces the proposal for a Green New Deal and connects his science fiction writing to the growing movement. He discusses how imagined scenario building and alternative societies might empower communities to be more proactive in responding to the reality of climate change. He also shares with us his long-term interest in architecture and how the built environment provides contextual and historical details in his own fictional writing. This podcast is produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more about us on org.columbia.edu. Thanks for listening. Hi, uh, my name is Ben Eckersley. I'm a graduate student in filmmaking uh, at Columbia School of the Arts. And hi, my name is Isaac Kim, and I'm a third-year graduate student of architecture at Columbia's Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation. And today we're talking with Kim Stanley Robinson, widely regarded as one of the greatest writers of science fiction of our time. He has authored more than 20 novels and has received dozens of awards, including the Hugo, Nebula, and Locus Awards. His works, including the Mars Trilogy, the Science in the Capital Trilogy, New York 2140, among others, are known in part for their deep and intricate portrayal of not only scientific processes, including questions relating to climate change, but also the human condition. Instead of resorting to popular tropes of dystopian futures, he has consistently built worlds that, while profoundly changed from our own, are still rooted with a combination of realism and hope. He is here today at Columbia University to speak on shaping the public imagination in relation to the Green New Deal. Good to be here. I think something to begin with is that uh, even though Isaac and I are coming from different fields um, with our own kind of practical concerns, we both know that narrative is incredibly important for what we do. I mean, in a very overt way for filmmaking and, and another interesting way for architecture. So as a writer, could you talk a little bit about your process of sort of conceiving narratives and, you know, the things that... Sure. Well, I'm a novelist, mostly, and so there you just have a string of sentences, one word at a time, and because we're animals that have language and we live in time, you can just say almost everything is narrative. It isn't quite true, it's, and so you can question it, but it's hard to know how useful that is. Um, the telephone book is not a narrative, and also possibly... Uh, architectural blueprint is not a narrative, although that would be interesting to discuss. It's uh, maybe a space in which you could project some narratives or talk about what kind of narratives would take place in this kind of a space and start making narratives. But it's not true that everything is narratives. It's just uh, we like stories, and a lot of people understand the world partly through the stories about it that they tell themselves. So that maybe is an interesting kind of a story to tell. Um, ideology, the imaginary relationship to a real situation. I like this definition because it means that we all have an ideology. Ideology is not the opinions of the people you disagree with, which is the common use of the word. It's actually something everybody has and needs to negotiate a world with all this sensory input that is crazy. Without an ideology, an imaginary relationship, there is a real situation out there, but you can't take it all in. So you take it in partially by way of the macro story that you believe, the, the one that puts it all together, a worldview, a paradigm, 
a philosophy, a religion. These are all ideologies. So these big stories are maybe worth thinking about since the, all the little ones are like white noise when you put them all together. You wrote a little bit about um, in an essay with the Buell Center and the power about the Green New Deal itself and how you said it's a process of scenario building, which is basically a science fictional exercise. So I guess what we were wondering was as a proposal for envisioning a new future of the U.S., uh, the tone of the Green New Deal is something that harkens back to the optimism of the Depression era New Deal. And however, acknowledging the deep divisions that existed and were in many ways exacerbated during the New Deal, the acrimony within our country today seems to grow deeper and deeper every year. Our own federal government itself has changed its stance on climate change with changes in administration. So we were wondering, talking about ideology and things like that, everyone seems to have their own competing social, political, and economic agendas. So how do you think that we as authors, designers, filmmakers, and the like can bridge those boundaries to shape how the American public thinks about this crisis of climate change? And do you think the Green New Deal is playing or will play a significant role in that dialogue? I hope it does. Nobody can predict the future and nobody knows that more than a science fiction writer. I try it all the time. Everybody tries it in their personal lives. So I would say that what I do is not different from what anybody else does. But when I write it down, I can see how impossible it is because I have a record afterwards. So you in your own lives, you're thinking if I do X, Y, and Z, I'll get myself to a good place. If things go wrong, I'll get to a bad place. So you have a utopian imaginary and you have a dystopian fear. So hopes and fears get expressed in your thoughts of your own future. And then when you write those down for the civilization's future, that becomes science fiction. But it can never be prediction because it depends on what we do now and then what we do tomorrow and what we do next year and on from there. And depending on what we do, we'll get to a good further point or a bad further point. The Green New Deal intervenes in this as a kind of a call to action and indeed an ideology, an imaginary relationship to the real situation. So say the real situation is ominous to bad. We've got data showing that we're on a course that will lead to a mass extinction event. This is the cause of the freakout. And now we've got a Green New Deal as a kind of plan for coping with a situation where we can see we're on course to disaster. The laws that we live by now will lead us further into disaster. The laws need to change. There's a process for that, politics and legislation. And indeed, when we were in terrible trouble at the start of the Great Depression, a set of legislative actions was passed by Congress, approved by the president, proposed by his team, his brain trust, and we call it the New Deal. And now this Green New Deal is proposing something similar in a way that I find very useful. And so since they used that name, Green New Deal, I believe it's really important to think about what the original New Deal was like and what made it succeed. It's very important to remember that there were, in essence, five New Deals. There was the 100 Days, there was Social Security, there was the Keynesian Stimulation, the World War II armament spending, and the GI Bill. And that means it's stretched out over about 15 years. And it means at the beginning of the process, they were the same as us right now. There's no way they could have predicted the 15 years that were to come when it was 1931. That would have been impossible. And it's just as impossible now. So when you do something like a New Deal or a Green New Deal, it's an improvisation based on what happens. So you interact with the history as it occurs to you. But from a, a set of principles or originary uh, goal, goals or values 
we're doing this to try to get to this space. And that's where you've got the scenario building, the science fiction story. If we do these kinds of things, and you can't specify them and call them out in particular very far, then we uh, will hopefully get to a better space later. So this is what I love about the Green New Deal. It is, in effect, a kind of political science fiction story that if we live it, we'll be in a better uh, future than if we don't live it. I guess to that, two parts of a question about kind of what artists can do about that. Number one, I mean, with this kind of overarching political science fiction of the Green New Deal, do you think that there are sort of particular areas of imagination that writers or filmmakers should be filling in? And then I think on the other hand, we were at a conference recently about storytelling and climate change, and we were asked an interesting question, what tools do you think you need as a storyteller to better interact with that story about climate change? And I guess, you know, what what things do you think maybe are lacking for writers or filmmakers to talk about those things? Well, I don't know anything about film, but for writers, we've got what we need. Mm -hmm. You've got your laptop. If you've got a publisher or if you can get it out there into the internet, then the tools are there. And what they can provide, what I think art provides to a proposal like the Green New Deal is sometimes called thick texture. I think it comes a phrase out of sociology. Thick texture would be a novel's worth of detailed characters, individual incidents, and also a plot. Very important. And plots are really things going wrong. So if things go wrong, how would you correct? What are the secondary effects of this proposal? Like you say we did do a Green New Deal. Who hurts in that situation? That's a story to tell. So then talking a little bit about architecture. So like last year, the Buell Center had an initiative called the Public Works for a Green New Deal, where several design studios examined the many implications of the Green New Deal in relationship to the built environment. And my own studio, um, I was taught by Mark Sumaki, uh, we were actually tasked with creating climate narratives of New York in the year 2050 and uh, looked to your book, uh, New York 2140 and other authors for inspiration about how to build a world that is convincing and that is rooted and based in situations and issues that we face today. Mm -hmm. So it led to uh, projects such as reimagining the electrical grid in the face of rising superstorms, using agriculture to remediate brownfield sites, creating closed loop utopian communities and more. But what we found was it was at the beginning, very difficult to move beyond the bleak predictions and apocalyptic futures that has dominated fiction and just the narrative of climate change in these past few years. But your work seems to always avoid these pitfalls. So I just want to ask, how do you personally maintain hope for change in our own country and for the world in the face of this issue? I do it as a political position, uh, as an act of the will that has nothing to do with my personal feelings. We're prosperous, bourgeois Americans. I shouldn't speak for too many people, and maybe not for uh, you, but for me as a prosperous, middle-aged white American, to be pessimistic when there are hopeful, young, poor people all over the world hoping for a better life, it's it strikes me as repugnant. And so a part of a leftist utopian political position to take in the world as an activism, you keep hope. And it's not hard. Hope is biological. I was thinking today that a feeling of hunger is your cells hoping that they'll get some more ATP. And an architectural plan, since we are in a school of architecture, that's the hope that that design 
will lead to happier humans. There has been some awful architecture for catastrophe or dystopian architecture that is out to hurt you, like Big Brother in, in 1984. But the vast amount of architecture has been utopian science fiction stories and hoping to become real in the landscape, and then things will be better for humans. It's really what architecture is about. It's why I'm a visitor here, because what I do and what they do here at Columbia School of Architecture is is a very closely and tightly allied. So let's hope, yes, it's biological, it's political, you wield it like a club. And the thing to dispense with is your feelings, or say optimism and pessimism, how you feel about it, the affect state, like... I feel so sad or I feel so despairing. I mean, I'm a young person and uh, my future has been stolen. Yes, all that's true. Big deal. You still have to do the work and you have to hold your life together. So in, in my New York book, it was the comedy of coping and the comedy of the commons to, to resist the idea of the tragedy of the commons. That if we decide we're all in it together, it can come out as a comedy in the Greek sense of being a good ending, a marriage at the end, renewal of spring, that kind of comedy. But it also can be funny because people never want the same things and they end up arguing and they end up falling all over their feet and you get comedy in that sense too. So as a writer, it's been tremendously useful to me. It really has. Can I ask a little bit then, talking a little bit more about your New York 2140 book? As an architect, the amount of detail that you went in with things like the diamond sheathing that would cover the foundations of buildings that have been submerged, the fact that you chose the MetLife Tower, uh, which is a clock tower near Madison Square Park, as where all your characters live. Um, mm -hmm. What about built space and examining and researching that here in New York? How's that influenced, or rather, you seem to have very spatial thinking when you do write, and I'm just wondering what kind of inspiration you take from architecture and the urban environment in your own writings. Well, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an architect, but as a left-hander, my skills with the drawing board, and it mattered back when I was a kid, were so dismal that I thought maybe not. Um, but I also think of my stories as having structures, and I get out big sheets of butcher paper, and I write down my characters, and I make maps, and I make narrative maps in colored pens, so I follow them around, and I can see, I need to see the shapes of my books. I don't think readers, maybe they catch a sense of them being orderly, but it's more for me than for them. And then... Material science, I read science news, I pay attention to the sciences and the material science in our time, they're going crazy with great new products that might be really helpful to us, especially in architecture and design. I even read about some kind of spray-on uh, carbon that would be as hard as diamonds, so then you get the diamond sheeting idea, which I think is still science fictional, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if it happened. And then lastly, I mean, the joy for me of this New York book was coincidences that are very New Yorkish. That clock tower at Madison Square, the architect that did it, a guy named Napoleon something, in the 1890s, he got the commission from the Met Metropolitan Life. He based it on the Campanile in Venice, in San, Mar San Marco Plaza in Venice, where I've also been. And, and that clock tower in Venice, the Campanile, 
it fell down in 1909. It was a, a brick pile on the ground. They rebuilt it in the same shape. So the one in New York is older, and also it's about 10 times. It's a magnitude bigger. It's Instead of 70 feet tall, it's 700 feet tall. It was the tallest building on Earth for about 10 months until the Flatiron Building overtopped it, although it seems to me that's backwards. I've been up to the top now because I went to the hotel that's there now and asked them to show me around, and they did. But it struck me as funny, right? Because I flooded New York down in lower Manhattan by raising sea level in this particular scenario. And then we have a, a Venetian campanile overlooking. I'm, I'm forgetting the Venetian word for a little enclosed body of water where they keep their gondolas, but it certainly is in the book as Madison Square being a five-acre whatever it is. So it, the coincidences that happen and the kind of visual jokes and the historical jokes are really part of the fun of creating the thick texture of a novel. It's interesting that you're just talking about New York 2140 and that being kind of significantly lighter in tone, well, toward the general sort of climate fiction, mm -hmm. and even maybe compared to your work in like Science in the Capital, which has its positive side too. I'm curious how generally do you feel that the conversation has shifted around climate change in the last couple of years? Do you feel kind of like a voice in a different direction than the general trends or...? Yes, I have been pushing myself to write utopian narratives. That gets weirder as we continue on the course that we're on. And attempting to imagine a utopian future from the situation that we're in right now requires some really wrenching historical developments. And I've just gone through that process myself, so I know. In that context, New York 2040 is awfully cheerful and positive. And what I wanted to suggest with that book is that if humans endure at all, there are going to be young people who are looking to have fun, to find partners, to uh, make a living. And they will take whatever situation they grew up in as a given. They're not going to worry about the stupidities of 100 years before. They might worry about the stupidities of their actual moment. I'm sure they will. But the, their situation will be a given, and that's what I wanted to represent. And, the, and New York is a symbol worldwide of hope. You come here, you whatever, you make a new life. So uh, it was appropriate. It fit what I wanted to do as a project. It's susceptible to being misunderstood, and it also I don't want to be caught interpreted as saying that it's all going to be all right. I think it's Zizek who calls this cruel optimism. And it is a form of stupidity at this point because we're not going to be all right. So I think that one book needs to be read in the context of all the rest of my books and everything else out there, including the, the extremely bleak climate fiction that's out there. And then it, maybe it's a little bit of a balancer. I guess just one final question in relationship to what you will discuss this evening. As a general public, considering how we as Americans are split on how we view climate change and its causes and effects versus the rest of the world. I'm wondering, like, what will it take for us as Americans to actually come together to create change in the ways that you outline in your essay? Well, you can see bottom up and top down. From bottom up, you see a lot of young people saying, hey, this isn't going to work our world, because you could imagine you living to the end of this century is going to be torched and it needs to change now because you can see that the older people that are in positions of authority aren't responding appropriately. Bottom-up pressure will be really important. And mass demonstrations in the, sh in the streets scare oligarchs and make change if they're followed up 
by legislative action, by reorganizing the way we run things and how we pay for things. And so there is a top-down element of people coming up with good laws, good new laws, a good new political economy. You're going to have to live into a post-capitalism of one sort or another. It's either that or you'll be on a devastated planet because capitalism is the name for the power structure that's wrecking things. Now, this is a very scary thing to say. Economists are not helping us. They are not speculative. They don't do the work of science fiction writers. They don't propose the next political economy. They analyze the one they've got as if it were a given, and it's axiomatic for them. So I had to make a distinction in my mind that I'll share with you. There's a huge difference between economics and political economy. And we have economics departments at every university like this one, but political economy as a discipline has gone away since the 19th century. And we need it. We need a new political economy that will have elements that are post-capitalist. Now, how do you make that up, especially as a science fiction writer? You can go around the world to places like Mondragon, Spain. You can look at the, the principles of cooperatives to find principles that if they were, if the whole world ran like Mondragon, Spain, we'd be in better shape. If the whole world ran like Finland, we'd be in better shape. So there are already existing models that are not just models, but are being practiced in the world to give us clues to a new political economy. But what's interesting to me, looking, uh, I'm not going to be alive at the end of the century, and, and hopefully you are, that differential in our ages is, means that you'll get to see a science fiction story that I'm super curious about mm -hmm. that I won't get to see. So it's worth thinking about it now to make that push. Uh, the push from the young will be crucial. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Columbia GSAP. You can find more information about the school on our website at arc.columbia.edu. Thank you.